So in light of uh, even what I just prayed, I want us to think through it because there's going to be some interesting words. This is one of those famous texts that pastors love to talk about, especially modern day pastors, because the beginning verse one says, but understand this, that in the last days, have you heard this sermon preached? I mean, I, I could literally just, and then I go off. I don't even need the Bible anymore. That's the good news. I mean, I can literally just kind of put this over here and I can say, I don't know if you've noticed, but I've been reading Facebook lately and people are messed up, are they not? And I just, I literally I go off in a completely different direction. And we do that a lot. I've heard preachers do that a lot. They just, they hear that phrase. And how many of you, when you hear that phrase, but in the last days, and you're kind of stuck somewhere between um, some view of, uh, uh, well, now I've lost the name of the series, Left Behind. You're stuck somewhere between that and maybe some Kirk Cameron movie of the same kind or, and you're trying to think about it. And you're even, you, I remember my dad saying that times were getting worse and we kind of get, we get trapped in this. And yet that's one of the problems because we need to remember the word that has been given to us. And we need to keep our heads down and we need to look at what these words are going to be saying to us. And so first of all, the first word that is actually mentioned in the text is a big deal um, because it's a very emphatic word. Um, I know it's just three letters, but... But that contrasting word, particularly the Greek word that it uses day, shows a strong demarcation, a strong difference that is coming. And so he is showing that this is the one way things are going to be, but, and then the next word we have here, understand, the NIV says the word mark this. It literally is the word for understand or to know, but know this, but it's said with such force that he wants them to pay special attention to this. Which, before we go any further, I guess it'd be good to go back and make sure that we understand this. And you'll see why this is going to matter in a moment. Um, so we've talked about this a number of times. So let's have a little bit of a test tonight. Who is the author of our book tonight? Second Timothy, who's the author? Paul is the author. And then who is the audience? Timothy. His faithful son or child in the faith. And then kind of a little larger than that. So Timothy is truly the audience audience. Who is the little bit of the extended audience? Do you remember the city? Ephesus. So it's Timothy and the city of Ephesus. Okay. Now this is why it's interesting. So when we look at how the Bible comes to us. I believe, and I hope you do as well, I believe that the Bible comes to us from God himself. Uh, I believe that the pastoral epistles describe the word of God as being God-breathed. <sighs> he breathes, and these words come to life. Okay, So God is, in many ways, the author of the Bible. Capital A, author. Okay, And then God writes... Through, I would say, a writer. Moses, Paul, Ezra. God uses people to write these books. We, we don't actually believe, um, as Orthodox Christians, we don't believe that God magically wrote and then gave. No, we believe that God inspired writers. And then by his continued Holy Spirit, he inspired them so that they might write. So we don't just believe that God is the author. We actually believe that Paul is, if I can make a, a difference, that Paul is the author. So God is the author, but Paul is the author. Do you understand that? 
That's why even when you read them in their original languages, God sounds like Paul and Paul. God sounds like John and John. Sounds like, God sounds like Matthew and Matthew. He uses our own. I love this idea, actually. He seems to be very comfortable, and this, to me, emphasizes the sovereignty of God. He is never limited by Paul or John or Matthew. But instead, he empowers by the Spirit. He enables them by his Spirit to communicate truth to the ultimate audiences. The Israelites, um, the Galatians, Timothy, okay? So that's how it works. So this is the audience. God to a writer to an audience. So where do we fit in? And that's kind of the, the question I want you to just realize. So when I even ask, so was the Bible written to you? Like you I don't know if you see yourself on that list. I would say in the same way that there is a, an author and an audience, there is also an audience and an audience. Right? Because if you even think about it, Paul, when he writes some of these letters, he says, hey, listen, and I want you to pass it around. And, and Paul, listen to his words. Because some people wonder, like, why do we care so much about this book? Like, why does it matter so much to us? And one of the reasons why is the Apostle Paul says things like this. And this was handed once and for all time to be given and delivered to the saints. The Apostle's teaching built on Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. And he just goes off like somehow this word is going to continue on. Thus saith the Lord. We see that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so there is an us, not because we're super, super, super important, but God in his eternal plan and his eternal design writes to and then to. And I want to say to the us's, for, for the last 2,000 years, the Bible has been delivered and delivered and it continues to be delivered. There is a serious problem that can come into the text when we ignore this, when we somehow believe that it was written from Paul, and then we just, how can we avoid that? Okay, we'll just go over here, and then we'll go there. That's a dangerous way to read the Bible, actually. It really is. It's a dangerous way to read the Bible. Because what you've done is you have divorced the Bible from its original context. And whenever you do that, you, you, are in, you are in greater danger of making the Bible say whatever it is that you want it to say to apply to your life. I know why we do it. I know why we want to do it. It makes total sense. We so want the Bible to speak to us. We so want the Bible to kind of reach through time, God, through these writers, to reach through us and to speak to us. But we need to be careful that we do that. Because when we do that, then... People begin to lose, and this is what's happened, I think, in our culture. We've seen so many people do this, that if there's one thing I can assume when I'm talking to somebody today, it's that they believe that me as a preacher can make the Bible say anything that I want it to say. I mean, I would even argue almost everybody in this room believes that too. So that's not just a worldly idea, right? 
You've seen it happen. Now, how, how do you do that? Here's how you do it. You ignore, first of all, I, I would even argue you have to ignore this and this. It's just God to you. It's just some really inspiring words, some really hopeful phrases. And what matters most is how I can apply these words to my life. And I'm trying to read the Bible like it's a direct word to me. And with the greatest of intentions, we violate that God has a very real word that is tied into history. And I believe this is in God's sovereign plan. It's tied into history to keep us from just doing whatever we want with it. No, these actually applied into very real places. And that's one of the reasons why, as a preacher, I can go, but understand this, in the last days, let me tell you about, I was watching some kids the other day at the mall, and they were just a bunch of hooligans. What, what have I done with that? I'm reading Paul as if he was talking about the kids at the mall. Now, by the way, I'll just say this. He might be, when we describe this. But before we just assume he's talking about the kids at the mall... I think it's good to let the word of God speak to us. So let me, let me deal with verse one in its entirety and then I wanna jump up and talk about specifically the last day. So, but, strong contrasting word. Know, mark, understand, pay attention to this. That in the last days, and we're gonna break that open, there will come times of difficulty. The word there can also be translated in the New Testament, violent, hard, difficult, and this difficult time is going to come in the last days. And he wants Timothy to know this. Okay? So, before we just say, who is he talking to when he says, but know this, but understand this, before we just actually go, well, he's actually talking about him in this context, the year roughly 64 to 65 AD. Before I just say that, which I believe is true, Let's take a look and see how the Bible uses the phrase last days, because this is what I did for many, many years. I would hear the word last days, and I would go, well, you know the last days, like the Battle of Armageddon. Like, you know the last days, like when um, Europe becomes a separate nation, and then the, the Antichrist comes, and um, he's got the map of Albania on his head, and he's got, you know, it's got all this kind of this craziness that we get all excited about. I'm not, I don't know if I'm getting that from the Bible. I just, I, I heard some preacher. I heard some other guy talk about it. I didn't get really any of it from the Bible. Most of my views about the last days and about the end times and about all of that didn't actually come from the Bible. They came from excitable television preachers. That's where it came from. Now, by the way, I will still say, I don't know if they're right or wrong. Why don't we see if what they're teaching lines up with scripture? That's, what, is, that sound, does that sound like a good idea? Let's see if they line up. The word last days actually doesn't appear very often in the New Testament. Surprise, surprise. And you don't see it at all. And, and, and there's, there's, there's more that could be talked about this. You never see it mentioned in the book of Revelation. Interesting. It's not like, hey, by the way, and here are the last days. It doesn't say that. So where did we get that idea from? And it's actually about 150 to 200 years old where we started talking about the last days as though last literally meant the final, meaning those few days right before, like the end end, right up till the very, very end. That's, that's, we, that became kind of the way to interpret those. 
So the last days are the final days right before Jesus Christ comes back, like the last, and then we get excited, whether you want to think it's the last seven years or the last three and a half years or the last 42 months, whatever, whatever number you want to put on that, that whole way of looking at that phrase is rather new. And one of the reasons why is because when you see it used in the Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2 verse 7, and you'll see how Peter uses it. Acts chapter 2, verse 7. Oh, I guess really, hold on a second here. Da, 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 da. It's 17. Not 7, thank you. It is 17. Acts chapter 2, verse 17. He's actually quoting the book of Joel, chapter 2. And here is what he is saying. Now, do you guys remember Acts chapter 2, what that is? That's Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. And the day of Pentecost is what? It is ushering in, let's just use a different word for now. It appears to be ushering in like a new era, right? It's the church is about to begin. And Peter reaches back into Joel the prophet because they're amazed at what he's doing. He's now, he's speaking in another language. There's something on that's going on that's a little bit, I guess, bizarre or a little bit out of the ordinary. And Peter says, hey, let me explain to you what's going on. And then he quotes Joel the prophet. Look at verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So, and then he continues to go on using some cosmic language, which I also think we misinterpret. But for the sake of this, Peter is saying, hey guys, if you're wondering what's happening, what's coming out of my mouth, if you're, under, if you, if you're confused as to why this is going on, I want to tell you, Joel the prophet said that in the last days this was going to happen. So in Peter's mindset, the last days appears to be when? Him talking. He's describing what's happening there. He doesn't say, oh yeah, and so by the way, in the last days, like you know, like in 2017, if that's the last days. No, he's saying the last days are uh, if we could pick it, put a date on this, 29, 30 AD. So we know that in Acts chapter 2, which is in 30-ish AD, it's already the last days. Okay. Take a look at Hebrews chapter 1. See if we can find another verse of scripture. Because hey, maybe, maybe Peter's using it a little bit different. Let's see if we can find some other support for that. And by the way, I'm not hiding a bunch of other verses. It's actually used four times in the New Testament. The phrase, last days. One of the times it's describing something not about anything about the last days. It's kind of talking about uh, holding on to some possessions in the last days of an inheritance. So it's, it's, it's clearly out of it. It's, it's a different context. Used four times. So the next one I want to look at is Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. And this will, I think, help us even more. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. Then I'm going to go all the way back to verse 1, if you don't mind, so we can read it in its context. Long ago, at many times, and in many different ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, 
So basically what he's describing is that there are two kinds of time. There is former time, and then there is latter time. So there's, there's, it's, almost, here, it's almost like this. It's almost like something with Jesus really changed things, as we're about to see. It's like something about Jesus, who he was and what he did, was a watershed moment. Which, by the way, would you say the Bible teaches that? So it actually lines up with what the Bible actually teaches, that, man, Jesus is a game changer. Okay? So here's what he says. Long ago, at many times, so in the former times, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom all he created the world. He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and upholds the universe by the power of his word. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become much superior to angels, as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. And so what is he saying? In the former times, how did God speak? Well, different ways, primarily through prophets. Thus saith the Lord. In these latter days, how did Jesus speak? And the answer is, or how did God speak? And the answer is Jesus. Which answers a little bit. I don't know if you ever wondered, like, why don't we have more books? Like, why don't we have more, more of this? Like, why does it go all the way up to Revelation and then we're done? Why? And one of the strongest biblical answers has everything to do with the fact that what more could God say? He's already given us everything about Jesus. Tell me what more he's going to say. I, I mean, honestly, um, he would say more of the same, right? He would say things like, okay, my, my son came to the earth, and this is how he lived. And this, Oh, yeah, we already got that. Okay. Um, and this is what, and we would begin to look at it, and we would unpack it, and it would look a lot like Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, First, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Like, it would look a lot like that. These books that describe his life, and primarily what you need to take home from that is that Jesus Christ came from God as prophesied in the prophets, lived the life that we could not live, died the death in such a way that we now have peace with God, ascended back to the Father, and it will one day return. And Paul, apparently, and Peter, and I guess James and John, and Jude, are these, I get them all? And yeah, James and John, so that's all of them. Then they write these letters to different places explaining more about what Jesus has done. And we have what we need to accomplish what God has called us to accomplish. Now, by the way, we're not, we're not so in love with the word that there's nothing great. I mean, no, no, no. The word is an extension of him, and God is the one we love. We're not in love with this book. Okay? We aren't. We're in love with the writer of the book. And the spirit made the book. So we, we love the book. But we love the spirit that made the book and the spirit that then empowers us and the spirit that works in unison. The spirit in us, okay, together. And in this book, you hear me say it all the time, word of God, spirit of God, people of God, together in unison because they are bound by the spirit of God, empower us to accomplish everything according to Jesus. And I would even tell you that your and mine fascination 
with things outside of what the scriptures teach us are um, understandable, but they can lead to some pretty dangerous ideas and thoughts. And by the way, they always have. People that are always looking for extra revelation. People that are always looking for extra insight, right? They are always, and hold on to this idea, they are always pursuing more and more knowledge and more and more understanding. But if God hasn't spoken, it's like a groping in the dark. That's what it is. Think about it. What more could God say that he hasn't already said in Christ? And that's the reason why the Bible has a place in time. And then in the end, we, we see after the writing of the book of Revelation and the apostles. And, and by the way, I love this. There's a lot of great stuff that was written. You should actually read First Clement. It's a great book. First Clement was written to the Christians in Rome. And it's a wonderful read. I strongly recommend it. You need to go back and read some of what the early church fathers wrote. It's wonderful. It's absolutely wonderful. And by the way, where it lines up with Scripture, it's really helpful. Where it doesn't line up with Scripture, eh, I got some questions. Everything comes back to this. And the Apostle Paul is is saying, listen, this is what, Timothy, you're going to see in these last days. That actually lines up with what Peter said. It now lines up with what the Hebrew writer said. Maybe it was Paul, maybe it wasn't. And then I want you to look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Now, I know we've already listened to Peter, but let's look at listen to Peter again. And it's interesting. He's talking about that the day of the Lord in this section, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3. Well, we'll go back to verse 1. This is how, or sorry, this is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved, In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by the way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and the Savior through your apostles, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the very beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, that the earth was formed out of water through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that existed was deluded with water and perished." But by the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. See, and you even read that in its context. Like I didn't just read it, I just didn't read a tiny little phrase. Peter is writing to the church, most likely in Rome, and Peter is describing this terrible situation that is upon them. And that's what we often forget. So he's describing, hey, scoffers are going to come. Now, here's what, here's what no one seems to say in the, in the New Testament. Hey, by the way, like, it's going to be a really, really long time. So I, you don't really don't need to worry about the last days. Hey, Timothy, the good news is you got 2,000 years before Jesus comes back. He doesn't come back till 2018. So you don't even need to worry about it. Why, why even talk about it? What does he tell Timothy? Hey, Timothy, I need you to be aware of this in the last days. What does Timothy, think about it. If Paul is describing 2017, what does he need to tell Timothy if Jesus comes back this year, right? 
What does he need to tell Timothy about 2017 to help him in Ephesus in 64? Nothing. Now, by the way, um, why, why do I say this? I say this because we're going, we're going to see how valuable it is that we understand it here so that we can actually see the proper way, the right way to apply it and understand it here. Because, as my father would say to me all the time, O oh, consistency, thou art a jewel. That was my, my father loved to say. I think it was from an old poem that he memorized when he was like five. But, O oh, consistency, thou art a jewel. And it is good for us to interpret the Bible consistently so that people have a credible record about what is going on. So what we look at by these texts, Acts 2, Hebrews 1, 2 Peter 3, 2 Timothy chapter 3, what we actually see is that what the Bible is describing, and what we see we have 30 AD, we've got another one that's mentioned in 64 AD, uh, Peter might be actually 65 AD, and they're all saying, pay attention to the last days, pay attention because it's the last days, pay attention because it's the last days. So, what the Bible seems to teach is that there are former days and there are latter days. And in those latter days, God has spoken through his son. And in those latter days, all of these things seem to be happening. Now, by the way, if you want to be a person that says, yeah, but in the latter, latter days, you want to add a ladder. So in the last, last days, okay, I get it. In the last, last days, like 2018, it gets even worse. I go, oh, okay, I don't know, we'll have to find out. Scripture doesn't necessarily say that, but if you want to think that, I guess I can't, I can't argue yet. I mean, if the Holy Spirit told you that, we could take a look at it. If you want to add, well, you know, the last, last, last days, we could keep doing this. But what the Bible actually teaches is more of a, a continuity. Jesus warned, read Matthew 24, we're going to hit it pretty soon. Jesus kind of says to them, and he says, even this generation, generation will not pass away. False messiahs are going to come. We, we love it. We love to just read that like it just skips over Matthew. It skips over the church he's speaking to. It skips over the, 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 the last 2,000 years of church history and just landed on your doorstep. And then instead of looking at it like that, here, here's the way I would rather us look at it. It actually applied to Matthew and his church. And to the generations after that, 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 generation after generation after generation after generation, God's word stood speaking truth about what these last days are going to look like. So everyone from the coming of Christ to the coming of Christ again needs to listen and pay attention and take heed for these words. One of the reasons why I think a lot of people blow it off is because I don't know if it is the last days, so that doesn't apply to me. No, 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 the last days began back here. It's what Peter said. It's what the Hebrew writer said. It's what Peter said. It's what Paul said. And this is what it's describing. And that's why I think there's a, lot, a little bit of a, um, you know, you've heard me say this a lot in my preaching. Just take a look at church history, or history for that matter, and I know we love to talk about things being absolutely terrible. Have any of you like read history? <laughs> it was, it's been pretty bad, by the way. Like it's been really, really, really bad for a long, 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 long time. 
And so mostly those people who go, it's been really bad, usually were born, you know, like in 1940. And so, you know, they're, they, they pretty much have, and by the way, I mean, there's, it's, I mean, I was born in 68, so I mean, I'm brilliant, okay? And when I look at all of my life, I mean, really, I mean, how much, how much, how much happened before 1968 in human history? Um, a lot. And this is what the Bible teaches. So Paul is talking to Timothy. He seems he wants Timothy to do something. He seems to want Timothy to pay attention to something. So notice how this continues. For, okay, again, that's a very strong, emphatic word. It's not a, these words, but and for, gar is the, word, is the Greek word for for here. Um, for people, so why do I need to be on guard? Because this is what's gonna happen, Timothy. I need you to be on guard. I need you to know this. I need you to be aware of this. I need you to know that difficult times are coming for people will be, and then let's look at this. This is known as a vice list. So you will see lists in the Bible. I have a little green over to the side. You will see virtue lists. For the fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Galatians 5, 22 and following. Okay, so you'll see these kinds of lists. They're called virtue lists in the Apostle Paul. Peter, add this to this, add knowledge to knowledge, faith, add to faith, perseverance. And, and so you have these wonderful lists. How do you read them? And what we usually like to do in our very Western way, it's not bad, it's just what we like to do. We love to create boxes. Last days. Let's see if we, we'll, we'll figure this out. Don't listen to Jim. Let's just take a list. Okay, what, is it, what does it say? Lovers of self. So self-lovers. Do you see that today? Check. What's next on the list? Lovers of money. So money lovers. Is that happening today? Check. <laughs> this is what we do with lists. This is not what you're supposed to do with lists. Lists are, are far more representative. We, we've seen lists already. Paul says, this is what an elder should look like. And he paints this incredibly powerful picture. And the problem is, is that when we look at it like this, we almost look at it like this is all there really is. Instead of getting really a sense of what the Apostle Paul is driving at. No, on these virtue lists, do you think the only fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control? Is wisdom on that? Would that be a fruit of the Spirit? Like, do you really think Paul's, yeah, no, that's not a fruit of the Spirit. Wisdom's not. No, it is. Paul's going, but do you get what I'm saying here? Yes, I get what you're saying here. And he is describing in 1 Timothy chapter 3, this is what an elder should look like. And the overarching idea is men above reproach. Not perfect, not sinless, but men above reproach, both inside the community of faith and outside in the community that they live. They are men above reproach. What does that look like, Paul? Oh, that's a good question. What does it look like? Well, they're, they're self-controlled and they're not given to much wine. They're not angry people. Um, what else could I say? Uh, they're faithful to their wives. Um, you want to, it'll confuse everybody, but write this down. Um, one woman man. Okay, we, and we read it, husband of one wife. And it, 
Yeah, that's okay. That's a whole, I've already preached it, so careful. We, we look at those lists and we think that he's doing this, and we really don't. I mean, I, I, I go back and I look at these lists, and this whole mentality kind of missed the point of what's actually going on. What Paul wants us to catch is the weight of this. This is what people are going to be. Notice what they love. And there, there's going to be a whole list of things here. So it's actually one of Paul's longest lists. Notice it begins with love and love, and it ends with love and love. Which those words take the word phileo, where, you know, Philadelphia, that's the phileo is the word for love. And it basically he attaches it to, to, to things. So you've got phileo, self, self-lovers, and then you have money lovers, okay, people who love money. You've got money lovers, and then, you've, and then he goes off. Are you ready? Proud and arrogant, literally those words, in, in a lot of commentaries kind of put them together. It's like almost like an arrogant pride is what he's describing there. Abusive, the word is actually usually translated blasphemous. So that kind of abusive is like a verbal, a, a, verba, a, a verbal abusive. It's not, it's not actually a physical abusive. It's that they slander people. This is what they do with their mouths. Disobedient to their parents. And then he goes off on this, um, he, he lists a number. Another thing that you can do in Greek is if you add the word phil to a word, then it's love, Philadelphia. Um, if you add an A to a word, or an alpha to a word, it is the same as in English, adding the prefix un. And so he takes a lot of very strong attributes, and he just describes them in the opposites by adding a ah on them. So notice this, ungrateful and unholy. Ungrateful and unholy. Now, if you think about it, I mean, they're lovers of money, they're proud and arrogant and abusive and disobedient, and they're ungrateful. How many of you go, okay, he kind of dialed it back there a little bit. Right? How many of you read that and go, ungrateful? That's not that bad. Right? I mean, I kind of yell at my kids at being ungrateful. It's interesting, though, that the phrase ungrateful and unholy, if you want to see a very interesting connection to this, I found this very interesting. Take a look at Romans 1 and see what the Apostle Paul says. I've all, I always, whenever I would look at that, ungrateful and unholy, to me those just sound like, like one's not that big of a deal and the other one's like a really, really, really big deal. They actually come up in another area. Um, the, this is a, we're going we're to read the last section. It's another vice list that the Apostle Paul has. Verse 28 is where I want to begin in Romans 1. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, these are people that God has kind of abandoned because they're wicked. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy and murder and strife and deceit and malice and maliceness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Then he says, they, though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And it's very interesting that as he is, as he is describing this, he is describing the two ideas. They neither give thanks to God for who he is. They literally, they do not give him glory, and therefore they become unholy. That's the idea of ungrateful and unholy. To be ungrateful will lead you to unholy living. 
It's interesting how powerful in the biblical text to, to be grateful isn't just to say, hey, thanks. You know, when you're, remember when you're, uh, when you're trying to teach your kids, you kind of, now you say thank you, thank you. And you go, well, no, that was deep. That was really deep. They really understood that. No, it's, it's not just a word that we say. It is truly is to recognize, like, where did it come from? Where did the gifts come from that you have? Where did the life, where did the breath, where did that come from? Think about it. The breath that you just took, where did that come from? God. The next breath you're about to take, where did that come from? God. Do you, you know that? I, I remember the first time I heard a, a preacher do that, it was Francis Chan. He mentioned that. He said, God, and, and should you keep me alive for the rest of this sermon, I pray that I would do it in all an honor to you. And I'm thinking, like you could die in the middle of this sermon? And as he was saying it, I was like, wow, he is really, I don't, I mean, I, just, I, I really love his ministry. He really helped me see that I just take for granted the breath that I take. And by the way, when I take for granted the breath that I take, like it's just kind of owed to me, then I can now live any way that I want to live. Like if I just forget about my breath and I'm not grateful for it, then does it really matter if I live in an unholy way? If I live in a sexually immoral way? I mean, I'm already ignoring the breath that God has given me. And from that ungratefulness leads to what? Unholiness. There's a strong connection between being ungrateful and being unholy, more than we would realize. Paul knows this. Next, verse three, heartless, literally without a heart, ah, cardia, heartless. Unappeasable, I love this. The word, when I went back and looked at it, it literally means unforgiving in the sense that someone is coming up and trying to make peace and that person doesn't want any part of it. Like, I don't wanna make peace. I wanna be at war with you. Do you know those people? Like, I just wanna fight you. I just wanna be at war with you. That is a mark of the last days. Slanderous, which kind of lines up with the word literally right above it in our text, um, the abusive and blasphemous. Without self-control, so ah, and then the Greek word for control. Brutal, the, literally the word means untamed. Uh, uh, oh, what was the other word that I looked at? Like, oh, I know, savage was another word that it could be, we, we don't use that word very much, but that's what it means, savage. Um, not loving good. Literally, I love, this is what I love about it, it's good haters <laughs> is, what it, is what it really is. It's good haters. Do you know people who just hate good? They mock good. They want nothing to do with good. That's what he says. Treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. And now as he's gonna get ready to end the list, notice what he does again. He comes back to the fill piece, the love piece. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Do you see the summary? They love themselves, they love money, and they love pleasure. But what they don't love is they don't love God. And that's what he is describing. This is what it actually looks like. This is what the end times look like. And so we should be on alert for that, all of these different things, okay? Now, when we look at it, what we actually see is, yeah, that is true today. And it was probably always true. 
okay? Which, by the way, it doesn't mean, ah, so it really doesn't matter. No, he's, he's marking, like, Timothy, what you're going to experience and what people you're going to lead are going to experience, and then generation after generation and generation, that in these last times, and I, here's one of the things that I was just kind of thinking through. So many people I meet have this idea of the Christian life and the church, is that, so I, I, I get some people, and they begin to believe, and, and we're good. And so it's like a plate that I got spinning, and that's good, okay? And then I, I think that plate's always going to work. And so then I go over here, and I find some people, and I get that plate, get plate spinning, and I, I think it's good. And then I go over here, and I get that plate, plate spinning, um, easy for me to say, and, and now that's good. And then I go over here, and I get that plate spinning, and it's all good. And you know what we don't realize? There are people that come behind us and knock the plate off the stick. We always think that it's always, like, it's what? It's always going to be one step forward. Always, that's it. One step forward. What's next? One step forward. And then what? Two steps forward. And then what? One step forward. After all, like, this is the kingdom of God, isn't it? This, by the way, was a very popular view. It believed, there was a, a popular view began in the late 17, early 1800s with the advance of science and the advance of, of looking at the world and they just believed the world is going to get better and the smarter we get and we're, we're just, just going to keep getting better and better and better and better and better and better until it's just, until it's heaven, until it's utopia. And then World War I hit. Okay, it's a little bit of a setback, but I'll tell you, I think we can fix this. And then... The depression hit. And then, and by the way, it's so funny that we talk like somehow that which only happens in Europe and America is the entire world. So I, I find that fascinating. But I mean, clearly the major movers were in that area, at least in the 1930s and 40s. And then World War II hit. And by the time World War II was done, and literally you have over a hundred million people dead in Europe and in, and in, in the Soviet Union. 100 million dead. They're going, yeah, um, I really don't believe that everything's just going to get better anymore. I think that was kind of a really dumb way to look at it. I think things are pretty bad. But until that time, just you read both in the church as well in the world, the 1800s had this, even though we had the Civil War, 600,000, more than 600,000 brothers killing brothers in America alone, right? 800,000 people murdered in Rwanda. And you go back and you even take a look. There, there were wars that, there, were, there actually were wars. There's a, there's a phenomenal, um, uh, it's a video that I found on YouTube that describes casualties in the different world wars. Uh, and it, when it goes back, we're actually in a crazy time of peace right now. But when you go back, there were some wars that happened in human history that even make World War II, in comparison to the world population, look like it was nothing. I mean, it's, it's, it's a messed up place. And yet, contrary to all of that, we just kind of believe that, hey, we're just going to get the plate spinning. And You can imagine. It's almost like Elijah syndrome. Once I deal with these prophets of Baal, we're good to go, Right? And he's done, he slays the prophets of Baal, and then Jezebel says, I'm gonna come kill you, Elijah. Seriously, I thought I was done with this. And Paul's telling Timothy, like, I really need you to put on your big boy pants. I need you to put on your seatbelt, because this is gonna be a long road till the end. 
The book of Revelation describes not just the last, last days. The book of Revelation describes that, and if you read Revelation 12, which talks about the crucifixion of, of Jesus and what that does to Satan, Satan, the adversary himself, and then he is unleashed, and it says that he will wage war against, I believe, the church, for he knows that his time is short. And one of the ways that he wages war is by deceiving and lying, and his followers do the same thing. And this is what Paul is describing. I mean, we do. I, I just think the more that I look at it, um, I have this weird presupposition that ministry is just going to be always one step forward, one step forward, one step forward. Contrary <laughs> to history and personal experience. Paul's saying, I need you to get ready for this. Now look at verse five. I find this fascinating. Verse five, after listing this terrible long list of terrible things, he says something that I want you to just, just take a look at that and just go, what is he talking about? Treacherous, abusive, insolent, good haters. Verse five, having the appearance of godliness. Honestly, real quick, tell me what in that list has the appearance of godliness. Anybody? Anybody look in that list and go, yeah, I mean, honestly, except for that one thing, that's a pretty good list. And he says it has the appearance of godliness. It, it's, it's, it's really helpful, actually, for me to look at this section in light of where we are in Matthew's gospel. So we're in Matthew chapter 23. Um, this Sunday, uh, it's called Jesus Issues Fair Warning is the sermon. Um, he goes after the scribes and the Pharisees. After last week, he warned, but this week it's, woe to you. These righteous people, and he describes them. Here's what he, here's what he refers to, the righteous people of Israel, okay? The, the ones, and I know we've got to, when we say the word Pharisee, it's got a really bitter taste in our mouth, but not in its original context. In its original context, these were the, these were the, these were the leaders of righteousness. And Jesus calls them blind guides, he calls them murderers. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says, you're a tomb full of dead bones, but you're trying to make the outside look good. He calls them snakes or serpents. This is what Jesus describes them. And they look so good on the outside. Jesus says, but you're greedy. Jesus earlier in the gospel accounts says, you know what you Pharisees do? You love to figure out a way to look at the law and then manipulate it so that you get what you want. You're willing to tithe right down to that very little last bit. And then as you're tithing that, you're trying to figure out a way to not honor your parents. Do you remember the story? Mark 7. He says, you, you, this is what you guys do. And you think it's righteous. Your parents have a need and you know that you should take care of them because the Bible says to honor your father and your mother. And then you say, well, you know what? But we should honor God more. So you take your inheritance or the money that you have and you dedicate it to God. 
And then you say, when someone says, well, who's going to take care of your parents? You say, I'd like to, but I really have dedicated all of my wealth to God, and I can't violate that. And so your parents, you're not taking care of them. And then when your parents are dead, what you say is, I made a rash vow. I shouldn't have dedicated all of my stuff to God. And then you pay the penalty, which is inscribed in the scriptures, that if you make a rash vow, you pay the penalty like a tax, and then you get all your wealth back. And Jesus says, and you think you're righteous. Can you, can you just feel the venom in him? You think you're righteous because you're observing the Sabbath, and I just healed this person, and you're mad at me for doing that. And Jesus becomes, um, the word orge in the Greek, meaning filled with rage, appears when Jesus is very, 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 very angry at self-righteous people who are condemning him for healing a man with a withered hand. And Jesus is filled with rage. And why is it? If you go back and you read the Pharisees, this is why it's kind of been neat to look at this text and to see it. I mean, the Apostle Paul is murdering Christians. He kills Stephen. He kills Stephen. And everybody around would have went, and I'll tell you, the one, what, what, did, what, does Saul, what does Saul describe himself? What does the Apostle Paul describe himself as before he knew Christ? What does he describe himself as? As to legalistic righteousness, I was faultless, he says. He had just murdered Stephen. You see what the Apostle Paul is describing here? There can be a, an apparent righteousness that is just evil. It is just satanic. And what Jesus is getting at is not that, it, not that you can't know anything about anybody. No, 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 don't go down that road. That's not what he's saying here. He is saying don't be don't be tricked, Timothy, by the outward appearance. Don't be deceived into looking at the outside. That there are people that are wicked and they are evil and they go to church. Notice what he continues on. This is very interesting. Having the appearance of godliness, but they deny its power, its dunamis. And then what does he say to them? Avoid such people. That's why I guarantee you, I, I really believe he's talking to Timothy. And he is saying, I want you to have nothing to do with these people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul says this in the context of excommunicating. He says, listen, you can't avoid like bad people in the world because how would you avoid bad people in the world, right? How would you do it? Couldn't do it. So you can't avoid those people. Now, if it's in the church, you avoid them. If there's somebody in this fellowship that is deceitful, they're, they're dangerous, right? If it's you, you're dangerous because you look... You look as sweet as the day is long, Brother Tim. You do, and you know it. And if he really looks that sweet and is that dangerous, he is doubly dangerous, right? And you don't want, what, is it, what does it smell like? It smells like a traitor. Like what's worse than a traitor? Somebody who claims to be on the inside, what does the Apostle Paul tell, interestingly enough, the Ephesian elders, what does he tell them? They are wolves in sheep's clothing. And what do you do to them? You shoot them. You kill them. You put them down. They're the ones that are far more dangerous. I'm, I really, I'm not, I'm not concerned about, do you guys know who Marilyn Manson is? 
crazy singer, just absolutely evil. I, I really, I would challenge, you'd have to have a strong stomach. Read his autobiography. It is difficult. I haven't read the whole thing, but I read parts of it one time just sitting in a Barnes and Noble because I was just curious. This was years ago. I was curious about this weird looking dude, right? And I just, and I thought, actually, my kids aren't going to get seduced into loving Marilyn Manson. If, they were, if I were to just say, read this guy. My kids would read that guy and go, that guy's jacked. That guy's messed up. Okay, that's not the danger. You know who my kids are in, could be in danger of? Is somebody who, who looks far more, um, I don't know, far more kind of like Jesus? What does Paul say about in the book of Galatians? Be very, very careful if, if someone comes to you and they tell you a gospel other than this, and they, even if they're an angel dressed in light. If I were to even ask you, what do you think Satan looks like? What is the, you know how, how many of you, when you think of Satan, like this grotesque creature? You know that the Bible says the exact opposite. He is gorgeous, beautiful, he is attractive. Yeah. Paul's describing this, and Paul says, avoid such people. Why? For among them are those who creep, literally, with that appearance of wisdom. They can creep. The idea there is to seduce, charm. They creep into households and they capture, literally to gain control or to captivate weak women. Now, some other translations, literally the word is like, it's, um, it's, it takes the word woman, gene, and it adds like a, a child prefix on it. So it's like a little girl, but it's kind of in a derogatory sense. By the way, not against all women. But these women, okay? I thought it was interesting. The NRSV calls them silly. The New King James calls them gullible. The NLT calls them vulnerable. So it's really kind of interesting how it works. But what he's saying is, is that these false teachers come in, they captivate them, and then it's these people. Take a look at these. These verb tenses were really important. He says this. These women who have... If I could tell you, I'll, let me read it just real quickly, then I'll explain what, it, what he means. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. Burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. But here's what the verb tenses say. They are right now in the process of feeling the weight of all of their past sins that have been heaped up upon them. They are in the, it's, it's, it's a perfect participle. So having been in their past, weighed down with all of their sins, they are now in the present tense, the present participle, they are being led astray. Isn't that interesting? Just how, like, how rich the verb tenses kind of teach you that? And when I, when I learned that, I thought, wow, that is such a great picture of not just silly, um, vulnerable women, but just how sin works, isn't it? What happens? We are, literally, the, the burdened with, means, it means to heap upon them, okay? We, they are, the, the sins are heaped upon them, and it's happening in the past, so that now in the present, they are just, they're being led. They're just, they, they're, they're incapable of even seeing or discerning. Why? Because of the sins that have come in the past. That's why what needs to happen is not, I, I love this. We don't just remind people of their sin, but we remind people of Jesus. The only way to break this trap is the gospel. 
Not just to remind people of their sin. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ that brings freedom and hope. Like I, one of my favorite lines from the movie, As Good As It Gets, is when somebody is describing this mess to this person who knows they're messed up and Jack Nicholson finally just cries out, I'm drowning here and all you're doing is describing the water. And I just think as Christians, that's what we do a lot of, isn't it? You're just describing my sin. I'm already burdened with it. In the past, I've already been burdened by it. And now I'm being led astray by it. And the only thing that can break that is, in fact, the gospel. Notice what he says about these women. Always learning and never able. The word able is the verb form of the, of the denying its power. Able is the word for power. So it's, he's kind of linking off of that. They denied the power. And now these women are always learning, but they're never, they never have the power to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Paul's saying, like, this is, this is jacked up. And this is what your ministry is going to look like. And then he says, just as Janice and Jambres, which, by the way, we, we don't know their names from the Bible. These are um, extra biblical names that are given to the priests during the time when Moses appeared before Pharaoh. Okay, so that you don't find these words, in the, these names in the Bible. It's actually from the extra biblical sources. Just as Janice and Jambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind. I love to go back and take a look how often Paul describes learning and the inability to ultimately know. But he says here, these men corrupted in mind and unfit or disqualified regarding the truth. And then he gives Timothy this great word of encouragement, but they will not get very far for their folly. Literally the word is their madness. Um, it's the same word that the Pharisees use when they are describing how upset they are with Jesus in Luke 6. Their, their madness will become plain to all. The word plain there, it's a little bit of a derivative word. It's, do you remember when Peter is, um, they, they recognize that Peter is using an accent and they go, hey, aren't you, a aren't you a disciple of Jesus? And they recognize that, okay? It became plain or evident to them by the accent it's that it's the root of that same idea it became known hey you're talking funny you must be a Galilean and what is what is Paul saying and this is the part that I love Paul doesn't go yeah and this is why you just can't know anybody you can't know Jim can't know Bree you can't know anybody you can't know Larry Zirkel can't know Tom you can't, can't know Tim can't know anybody how can you know anybody can't know Randy can't know anybody what does he say they will not go very far for their madness will be plain to all as was with those two men. So you read this and you just go, man, it is. It's hard and it's a mess and people are kicking over plates and what am I supposed to do? Preach the gospel. Tell the truth about who Jesus Christ. Rest in his spirit. And guess what will not happen? What will not happen is failure. Sure, it'll be two step forwards, one step back. But listen, God's got it all under control. And you can discern that which is true. Why? Because God will not abandon his gospel. Do you know that? He won't. And it will be clear as to what is folly and what is true. Those are the words of our text. Go and live in that truth. Love you guys, and we will see you Sunday when I get to talk more about the Pharisees.